1: Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. Um, On this episode, I'm going to be talking about empowered popular feminism and popular misogyny with its author, Sarah Benet-Weiser, who is a professor of media and communications and head of department at the London School of Economics, Department of Media and Communications. Yes, I've got that right. Excellent. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, This is an unbelievably great book and it's both, you know, really interesting. It's a great read. And considering the process of writing academic books takes ages, it couldn't be more sort of immediate, relevant, and more kind of at the moment. And I wonder if we could start maybe with with asking where the book sort of fits in with your academic career and your thought to date, and how is it that you've written a book that's just so perfectly timed?
0: Um, sure. And thank you for the kind words. Um, I This is my fourth book. And I generally have chosen topics to write on mm-hmm. and subjects to write on, um, that are, um, kind of marginalized in some way. So my first book was about, was about women and it was, but it was about women in, in, beauty pageants and thinking through that. And then I looked at kids and, and the way in which networks, television networks created children as a particular kind of brand. Um, and then I, um, I, 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 uh, wrote a book on brand culture where I kind of was asking the question, what does it mean? What does it mean that we live our lives through brands? What, what, what's at stake there? And what should we do about it? If anything. And one of the things I was doing in that book, one of the chapters in that book was a, a look at the company dove, um, from the fifties through the eighties, through the current moment. And that book was 2012. And I really became interested in the ways in which certain kinds of corporations like Dove, but now like CoverGirl and Audi and Chevy, um, harness feminist rhetoric as a way to sell products. But it's not just simply kind of inserting a feminist message, there are programs behind it. Dove has a self esteem fund. Um, and there's websites. It's about co-production with consumers. So I really became interested in in how it is that feminist messages in in this in in the you know 21st century were being used as a way to sell products, but also as a way to sort of spread a message about feminism. So that's how this book started. And so I started looking at. All of the, uh, you know, the different messages, uh, feminist messages that you see all around you. And I have to say that for me, like many people, um, one of the formative moments was actually uh, watching Beyonce at the 2014 video music awards from MTV with the word feminist lit up behind her. And that became this moment where people said, Oh, this is a zeitgeist. And, you know, um, this feminism is having a moment. And so I, so I started, um, you know, I'm a media studies scholar. So I started looking at different media, uh, forms and platforms and where these feminist messages were cropping up. And so the book began, as a book about popular feminism. And I was talking about it in terms of popular because it was accessible, broadly accessible on media platforms. It was also about a certain kind of popularity. It was a happy feminism. It was affirmative. Um, it wasn't alienating or angry. Um, it was about confidence and self-esteem. Um, and I also see popular culture as a terrain of struggle. So those for those three reasons, I, I began to think about it as popular feminism. And every time, literally without exception, every time I started to do research into one of these um Tumblr pages or Twitter feeds or or you know uh corporate ads I I found this incredibly hostile and increasingly hostile and increasingly vicious response to it and so the book is really the main argument of the of the book is that I don't think that we can understand what popular feminism means in this particular moment right now without also um, analyzing it and, and positioning it in relationship to, to what I began to call popular misogyny, which is popular for some of the same reasons that feminism is. It's accessible, it's networked, um, and it's, uh, you know, it's about a terrain of struggle.
1: I mean, there's a kind of ground clearing exercise. It'd be quite useful if you could say a little bit about how you define those two things. I mean, you've gestured towards it already because that struggle both sort of animates the book but also quite usefully, um, I think, allows the book to go beyond just um, a discrete analysis of, say, yeah, advertising or um, empowerment programs or this kind of thing, and and really foregrounds the sense of actually, you know, there is progress and backlash, there are ambivalences here. So those two, I think, key terms maybe um, need a bit of definition.
0: Sure. Sure. and and to your last point, this is um, a conjunctural analysis. So I'm looking at um, different media forms, different media platforms, as well as the political economy and the structural ground on which these media platforms make sense and take shape. And so, for popular feminism, you know, I really position it as um, having this kind of moment um, after what many, you know, media scholars have talked about in terms of post-feminism. And I've done that too. And that, and, you know, post-feminism is this sensibility as Roz Gill would say that, um, where, where you recognize that feminism exists, but you don't need it anymore. And so it's all about girl power. It's about, you know, you do what you want, you can objectify yourself, you know, and, I started thinking about the, the way I define popular feminism is that popular feminism is in some ways a response to post-feminism. in that if post-feminism was right, if we don't need feminism anymore, why are there such stark inequalities? Why is it, why, why do we have Me Too? Why do we have such widespread sexual harassment? Why is there a pay gap? You know, why aren't there more C- female CEOs? So, So this moment for me, popular feminism is an embrace of feminism. Um, It's it's a recognition that structural inequalities exist, gender inequalities exist, and and that we should try to do something about them. That said, and there are different popular feminisms, Mm. the one I highlight in the book is one that really targets individual women. And so it is about, popular feminism for me is about saying to someone uh, through a blog or through a Tumblr page or through an Instagram, you should just be confident. You're beautiful. You can do whatever you want. Just say that to yourself um, and, and be confident, lean in, you know, get over imposter syndrome, that kind of thing. And if you don't, then it's nobody's fault, but your own. And so popular feminism for me is this curious recognition that there is structural Inequ- gender inequality, but that the only way to resolve it is by individual women doing individual things so in that sense it follows a very kind of typical corporate model of addressing people as consumers you know popular misogyny um, is again it shares some of these same characteristics um, but it is I I try to talk about it as more than, you know, kind of the conventional definition, which is like a basic hatred of women. Instead, I talk about it as something that is more nuanced and really importantly, networked. So it's networked across different, you know, modes of communication and modes of media. So men's rights activism has been around since the 1970s, but it wasn't until the last 10 years where it really grew into a global network because of social and digital media. Um, and and the um, the 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 early kind of efforts of men's rights organizations were often things like paternity rights or child custody things. Um, now, what, what, you know, kind of men's rights organizations are about are really about making sure that everyone knows that whatever problems men have, it's
1: because of women. It's because of feminism. I mean, it, it's quite, I was going to say it's quite easy to conceive of popular feminism. I mean, many of the sort of um, discussions and debates we see in popular media draw on some of the ideas of popular feminism and some of the critiques of it. But I guess the popular misogyny, maybe it'd be quite useful to have an example of that. So early on in the book, you talk about the Don't Be That Girl yes. uh, kind of campaign. And, and it struck me as really interesting because exactly as you'd said, you would know, said, these on the one hand kind of individualized, you know, almost drawn ideas about neoliberal uh, feminism and, and you know, responsabilization, individualization, but also there is something kind of slightly different going on with this kind of aggressive assertion of this is women's fault. Yes. Um, So it'd be, yeah, if you could like sketch out that.
0: Sure. uh, Sure. I mean, so, so what I argue in the book is that, um, there's a kind of common thread that, um, that I think, um, shapes and, and, and offers logic to both popular feminism and popular misogyny. And that is, the thread of these twinned discourses of injury and capacity. And so for popular feminism again the injury is a structural one. It's general sex it's centuries of sexism, right? The and so capacity popular feminism sees itself as offering the capacity to individual women to overcome those structural injuries. So the you know the the injury is structural and the capacity is something where again you just lean in or you are just confident popular misogyny takes these discourses of injury and capacity and mirrors them back to feminism. but as I talk about in the book it 's like a funhouse mirror it 's they 're distorted they 're transmuted they and what they do is they they position injury as injury to men, and that injury is caused by women by by uh, marginalized communities um, by non heteronormative people by Um, refugees, by immigrants, by anyone who is encroaching on a kind of basic patriarchy. That's the injury. And and the capacity I see, and this is where I think popular misogyny needs to be taken both seriously and taken differently than in, in times previous to this. The capacity is about recuperation. It's about restoring patriarchy as if it's really gone away right but then it takes place it it, it takes shape in violent ways so so you don't you, you've seen misogyny forever you haven't seen women who dare to talk about video games and the problematic representations of gender getting death threats and rape threats right you you you've seen misogyny as a kind of you know low level you know thing that happens discourse or, or remarks that happen in enclosures you don't see them you know spouted off routinely by the president of the united states right i mean so so i think that what we need to think you know what i'm trying to say here about misogyny is that it's often positioned as an outlier but it really isn't that different from kind of conventional norms and 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 values and and we're it's we're slowly just kind of accepting that right, and that is a huge problem so so the injury for misogy- for for in terms of popular misogyny is the injury by women, and the capacity is actually a structural one it is uh, electing heads of state who are known misogynists. And we've seen this with Brazil. We've seen this with the U.S. We've seen this, you know, all over the place. It's it's the extreme right movements across the globe, which use m- misogyny not as a tactic, but as part of their agenda. And so um, the, you know, com- kind of capacity to get over the injury that was caused by women is often to fold in misogyny as structure.
1: I mean, it's, it's the specter of Trump. Um, hangs over yeah. the book, but I, I suppose the kind of the thing I liked um, or found hopeful about the book was the sense of this is a text that will help us analyze and understand Trump that goes beyond you know um, economic grievance in the Midwest or something yes. like that. Which is, uh, I mean, I like political science, but that you know tends to be the drier, yeah, you know, sort of uh, colder sort of set of explanations. Um. It is tricky as you gesture towards the kind of untangle, the misogyny and the feminism in your analysis. But I suppose um, the more kind of interesting or, or the, um, the bits that stood out more to me were the moments uh, when you kind of foregrounded your analysis of popular feminism. With, obviously, some contrasts. And I guess there are maybe two examples we could talk about. One might be, and you mention this term quite a lot, the idea of confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other one might be um, ideas about body positivity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a long kind of tradition of critiquing um, through media and communication, sociology, uh, these ideas about body positivity campaigns and you know, corporate uses so of them. And it'd be interesting to hear your sort of take I guess on that before we start talking about things like confidence. Sure. Um, I
0: mean, I think body positivity, um, uh, the love your body movement um, that, you know, we see it everywhere. It's in apps. So there's tons of, you know, body positivity apps so that you can just look at your phone and, and make yourself feel better about your body. You can see a little bit of it in advertising where people say, you know, where you have someone who is not conventionally, um, thin on the cover of a, you know, and this is body positivity. Um, you see uh, uh, you see it in, in, in corporate ads, you see it on, um, yeah, again, in Instagram, and, and you see it kind of everywhere. So it's body positivity is sort of, or love your body is sort of a movement, right? Um, I think that the way I think about it within popular feminism is it also is something that is about your body. Right. So, so I can look at it. I can look at, you know, read an inspirational Instagram every day about that is about like making me feel better about my body. And the problem is, is that it doesn't actually touch on why it is that women, so many women feel so horribly about their bodies in the first place. So it keeps intact. This idea that there is one ideal that is usually thin and white and um, tall and and conventionally beautiful it keeps that intact, but it says we can widen this you know this the parameters here so that other women can feel positive about their bodies. Feeling positive about their bodies isn't a way to stop getting us to think that we are defined by our bodies in the first place. You know, so, so there's, you know, it's tricky, it's complicated. And, I, I and this is the
1: limits of like Dub's campaign. E- yeah.
0: Exactly. You know, Dove's campaigns are, you know, they say they, you know, the, la, the, the, the most of them say that the problem with self-esteem and the problem with confidence lies within you. So if you, it's, you don't think you're beautiful. You think you're fat, you think this. And so it is about working on the individual. It is a corporation. It works on consumers as individuals. So it's about you telling yourself and you somehow just are, you know, becoming confident. You take confidence classes and they're, they are everywhere online, you know, you, you know, and so it's really about, uh, the individual woman rather than, Again, the structural ground that encourages a particular kind of mindset that some bodies are more beautiful than others, and that's where we have to go. We have to, and also just to kind of question why it is that we're constantly still, if feminism has done its job, why are we constantly still evaluating ourselves and being evaluated by our bodies?
1: Uh, again, you, you know, you kind of touched on the confidence ideas, and that um, I think was something where this dialectic between feminism and misogyny really came strongly through actually with, you know, the same sort of individualized and, you know, kind of responsibleized set of practices about transforming confidence play out with things like the seduction community. Yeah. Um, And it'd be useful um, to maybe have that as a contrast to um, not just the kind of confidence and body positivity, but to kind of show how really the same dynamics are at play here mm-hmm. and the same sorts of structural failures, yeah. I suppose, mm-hmm. and individualized um, trends.
0: Sure. I mean, I think that one of the things that I try to talk about, I try to flesh out in the book is that within popular feminism and within popular misogyny, there are these themes like confidence, but they're sort of like empty signifiers, they kind of hang there. So, so for popular feminism, I looked at hundreds of confidence organizations and trying to think, what are we training girls to be confident about? Is it about their bodies? Is it about their minds? Is it about learning to code? What are you know, what is, why, why do we need to be confident? Um, And it turns out that confidence organizations in this moment, this moment of neoliberal capitalism are really about training and teaching women and girls to be confident in the workplace. So it is about teaching them or the goal is to become a better economic subject, right? It's, it has a feminist inflection, but it's not about being a better feminist. It's not about challenging patriarchy. It's about how to succeed in patriarchy, right? So confidence for women in within popular feminism, I really see as, as about, you know, learning to become part of the corporate world and a success in the corporate world that's what sandberg's you know Yay. book was all about yeah. that's what all that is about the confidence gap which is another best selling book was also about how men feel more confident at work than women and that's why women can't you know progress in the workplace so it's really centered around economic um uh confidence For misogyny, there is, or for men in within these kind of popular misogyny, um, this popular misogyny context, there is also a confidence problem. It's not economic, though. Even even though there are many men who are you know working class, you know who who could use confidence in terms of being a better economic or you know a, a quote better economic subject, the confidence issue for misogyny is about being emasculated. It is directly related to masculinity and it is seen as something that feminists in particular, women in general, but feminists in particular have taken away from them. So it's about masculine self-confidence. And so that's why you have things like the seduction community and the pickup artist industry, which literally trains men to, you know, figure out ways to pick up women. Because somehow sex, heterosexual sex, is something that is seen to be owed. You know a, you know for men by women and and when men are not successful sexually, then it is something that they blame that they often blame on women, so confidence here is about learning how to manipulate women into bed with you, basically in terms of the seduction communities and pickup artist um, industries and I will say that you mentioned structural failures that you can see increasingly also a response by men who have been told, if they just follow these steps, if they just dress the right way and use the right words and do the right, they can have sex with anyone they want. That's obviously not true, right? Because we're human beings. Um, And when they fail, the failure sometimes, um, and unfortunately, tragically, increasingly, the failure itself is expressed in violence towards women. So it's you know it's not violence towards patriarchy, which is a context that that you know uh, you know uh, sort of enforces competition among men in the first place. But it's about it's against and targeted towards women. So you have the incel movement, and there's been like five mass killings by people who identify as incel, involuntarily, involuntarily celibate because they have been rejected by women and because they felt that 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 they did not deserve that rejection so so the confidence here is about masculine confidence from for men and for women it's about economic confidence
1: but what, what's interesting as well i think and <clears throat> comes through in the book as well is people are still getting paid you know so the, the kind of the sense of this as being um say a ideological or political problem you know as you've you've mentioned you know there is a a kind of a pickup industry, there's a selection community, and this is not just, you know, kind of sharing things on message board, this is coming to seminars, this is, you know, quite expensive as far as I can see, you know, investments and, you know, you've got on the one hand investments in um, particular kinds of self-improvement that are problematic in my view, but also investments in the kinds of products that we've seen with um, I mean, it sounds really awful to compare Dove to men's rights activists, yeah, yeah. but but again, one of the things the book is trying to do is sort of say there are similar dynamics. Here. There are,
0: yeah, there are similar dynamics, and it's true. And and what I try to I try to make clear in the book too is that these are all on a continuum, right? Um, and so so yeah, you don't want to necessarily con- c- compare Dove to the pickup artist industry, but there are similar logics there, and some of the similar logics are about popularity. Are about accessibility and then you have these themes like um self-esteem and confidence and um and uh Competence. I do. I have a chapter on technical competence, and so you can see that there are themes that really that are really shared. You mentioned earlier this campaign, um, "Don't Be That Girl," and that's a really that's a really clear example about how these themes are shared and how they're distorted with popular misogyny. So this was a campaign by um, a coalition of of rape activists and um, and campus activists for college women. Um, About date rape. And so they put up a bunch of posters that said, you know, just because things like just because she's drunk doesn't mean she's giving consent. You know, um, don't be that guy. Right. So don't be that guy was the name of the campaign. And a men's rights organization took those literal images, the same exact images on those posters, created their own posters and said um, you know, but basically made it about false accusations of rape, right so um uh just because it was bad sex doesn't mean it was rape don't be that girl right so there's they use the same logics and in in just in a kind of distorted way, but yet yeah, they're both popular feminism and popular um, misogyny exist in you know in neoliberal capitalism and also. They circulate and are heard and seen on what I call an economy of visibility, which is about this um, the kind of endless circulation of these images and endless kind of overlaps between different media platforms where visibility of feminism and visibility of of misogyny becomes the end rather than a route to uh, or means
1: to an end. The one, I suppose at least in my reading, this might be wrong, but I suppose the one moment where that interrelationship didn't quite hold true was thinking about tech. And I think uh, the analysis of um, empowerment of women in tech, that really you know, sort of uh, made sense within the overall arc of the book. But it struck me that the reaction against that was almost beyond this uh, you know, kind of similar you know, lines of thought, similar rhetoric and stuff like that. Um, so it, it'd be interesting to hear your kind of analysis of, um, the tech industry in the book. Um, and yeah, like at least in, in my reading, the kinds of the moment of things like GamerGate, there was, there was no reciprocity at all. Uh, you know, that was, right. was a really kind of, you know, the idea of sort of, um, placing the responsibility for learning to code and thus combating structural sexism. Really was outweighed by, you know, um, hate campaigns, mm-hmm. SWAT teams to people's houses in response right. to what were effectively, you know, very really minor kind of demands for different sort of characters in online RPGs and yeah, things like yeah, this. So, yeah. so, yeah, it'd be interesting to hear your sort of uh, analysis of tech and that and how that balance works.
0: Yeah, yeah. and And I think that, you know, also the reason why I separated these into kind of themed chapters is that that d- dynamic i feel like the dynamic is always there yeah but it's not always even yeah like yeah, you yeah. said it's not a, i mean the the campaign i just mentioned the don't be that girl don't, that's like a that's like a beautiful research object for a scholar, right because they it's literally using the yeah. same images within the tech community um am basically what my argument is that it, it, in there is that if you accept that that um, uh, that technology industries are have either become or are becoming or, um, the kind of uh, center of power, right? Kind of taking, shifting away from financial culture to tech culture, um, which we can see just by looking at companies um, and who owns them and the amount of wealth that that are owned by those companies, then you have um, you have a it's a you know tech. Uh, the tech industry encourages a different sort of masculine position, a different sort of masculine subject position. And in many ways, these are, um, you know, kind of this, what some people have called geek masculinity. These are men who have been bullied or challenged uh, based on their masculinity, right? Um, throughout childhood before the, you know, before the tech industry explodes. Now they're adults, they're smart. They have good, well-paying jobs in the center of power, and they and they feel like they've earned it. And so, when women dare to encroach on that terrain, the response is swift and it's vicious. And it, it is really, like you said, it is like filled with hate. I mean, it is rape threats and death threats and swatting people. And and so, you know, what I argue in the book is that this is about. Um, more than anything else, this is about sort of you, you've, you've lived a sort of marginalized life in terms of dominant masculinity. You've achieved the things that masculine subjects are supposed to achieve wealth position, a good house, you know, a good job and everything else. But you still don't have what is apparently part of that package, which is, you know, a woman or, or the, um, heterosexual female attention and that sort of stuff. So there's a, uh, kind of culture of hatred about what, again, what people feel that they are owed. This is, um, where you get a lot of incels, right. in in that community or the, the, this is often the community. I mean, he, he speaks to a large community, but Jordan Peterson Mm. speaks to a lot of people in this area too, because it's like, you know, he gives us kind of common sense advice about, you know, clean your room and everything else, but then says lobsters. (laughs) "Lobsters," Yeah. And then says that in order for it really uh, it, you know, it, to be fair, we need to have enforced monogamy. Right. So kind of pairing people up. So I think that the threat to geek masculine communities is, is felt more because they have been denied privilege um, and even you know they 've been given privilege because they 're male but because they 're geek you know smart or whatever and so when they achieve a certain position the 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 fact that women could threaten that position is is kind of overblown and exaggerated and that 's what I think happened in gamergate i mean you know again. You know, someone made a, a, a video game of Anita Sarkeesian because she had a video program that talked about problematic representations of women in video games. That's not even an argument, you know? I mean, it's not like, you know, she's great, but I, I, she wasn't really going out on a limb. And the response was so vitriolic and so over-exaggerated that it really made me kind of dig or dig deeper into that relationship to see what it is that is um, so threatening about women entering this field.
1: The traditional uh, kind of conclusion to, you know, really weighty critical analysis is always some gesture towards a kind of, you know, hopefulness or, you know, some practical advice on change, etc. But obviously the moment that we're in and the moment of the book I mean, in some ways, it would have been ludicrous if you were like, "and here's ten ways to solve all." This. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I suppose as a kind of concluding comment, maybe I've got two questions. One is um, if you'd say a little bit about um, the kinds of hopefulness, but also the ambivalence of things like the Women's March and the response to Trump's election. Um, and I suppose, actually, you know, after um, the comparatively good showing. In the midterms, you know, there is mm-hmm. a slightly different political context than if I'd interviewed you say three or four months uh, ago. But then the the other question I've, I've got beyond um, that kind of codas of the book is is where does empowered analysis go next? You know, what what kind of projects do you see coming out of this book? Um, where we started, there was a, a I, I kind of sensed an arc through the four books you've written. You know? mm-hmm. Is there a an empowered to coming or, or something like this?
0: That's the main question, know, asking the person what I, I, her next
1: project was, is. Like, <laughs> the, the, these books take so long to write. They take so long to come out. And then the first thing anyone asks is, oh, so what are you doing <laughs> Wait,
0: now? <laughs> yeah, here? yeah. So, yeah. Um, um, well, I'll, the first question first Um so so just to 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 kind of go back to the beginning um I was writing this book because I was seeing all this thing all these things happening and it was due in November 2016 and then Trump won and I texted my editor and said I don't think I can do this cuz what am I writing for if this happened and she's an amazing editor and wrote back and said, you have to do this. It's more urgent now than ever. And so I went ahead, you know, and, and, and then took another, you know, the whole year to think about what Trump and the, the kind of specter of Trumpism meant for this, um,
1: for this book. Um, I yeah. mean, the analysis is true. If Hillary had won as well, you know, these, yeah. like, I mean, that's what's so powerful about the book. It's not contingent on one uh, on whatever it is, you know, one hundred thousand votes in the Midwest, you know that this yep. structural analysis would have been true either way. But I guess Trump gives it, you know. An well,
0: advent. well, Trump, Trump gives it, um, like you know, I think uh, in some ways w- a predictable point, right? And that you're absolutely right. All this stuff has been happening and increasing. And Trump is just a part of that. I mean, the election of Trump is part of the fact that this, this idea of injury and capacity, um, and, and the relationship between popular feminism and popular misogyny is, is intensely organizing our lives. Make America great again is about injury. It is, it's again, right. It's about recuperation. It's about restoration and that Ends up being the you know the kind of logic of popular misogyny. So so I think that um, you know at, that 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 is not something that I'm ambivalent about. I am ambivalent about popular feminism. It's hard for me as a feminist theorist to critique. You know, feminism. You know, messages of feminism. I have a seventeen-year-old daughter, you know, who who considers herself a feminist. I didn't consider myself a feminist when I was seventeen because it was not at all something that people would embrace. That's amazing to me. I participated in both, you know, in in the two so far since the Trump election, the women's march uh, marches, and it was an amazing, affective, powerful experience to see so many. Women and men gather in solidarity for this. And so I think that the that that is, you know, incredibly important. My, my, my hopefulness is that we can't stop there because what happens is, you know, in the U S immediately after the first women's March, we had women silenced in Congress. We had, you know, racist, um, remarks said about female politicians, you had all sorts of ways to stop that power and to stop that sort of incredible visualization of all those hats and all those people. And, and I think what we need to, to do is be patient and recognize that something like me too is now a global it's a global mobilization i'm not sure it's a movement but it's a global mobilization and figure out how to not let it end there and so for me that's 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 the part i where my ambivalence is is that we need to you know i i critique t-shirts that say this is what a feminist looks like i have that t-shirt right um so i'm not saying that there's that that I'm not questioning the intentions of women or men who wear that, that t-shirt. What I'm saying is that what we need to do is look at the social and political and economic conditions that allow that t-shirt to stand in for structural change. And that's, and so, so in terms of my ambivalence, that's it, you know, that's, that's where it lies. And in terms of, um, the, the midterms, I think that it's a really, like you said, it's a really interesting moment. Now we have to wait. Now we have to wait and we have to see, you know, there's one thing about bringing women to the table and I'm all for that. There's another thing about having women help build the table. And it seems like these women might be the ones who want to help build the table. And so I'm hopeful about that. We'll just have to see. Um, And, and I guess in terms of my next project, I think, you know, I have now written a book about, about the sort of individualist, messages of feminism, um, that get garner the most media visibility that are the most seen, um, that are happy and, and positive and affirmative and often related to corporations and selling things. And I think now I would like to do something that is about thinking about other forms of popular feminism that are more structural and, and whatever, visibility i have to bring those to the surface because they don't circulate so easily on twitter or in blogs or you know and so kind of figure out a way to participate in these um and feminist popular feminism that is about structural change that is about global change um not so tied to celebrities and visibility but rather tied to um actual you know kind of political action